This is Hotspots H2O from Circle of Blue's award-winning team of journalists, where each week we examine regions, populations, and countries that are at most risk from water-related stresses. I'm J. Carl Ganter. With stories from around the world, we're revealing the greatest and emerging challenges and the solutions in the face of the fast-growing competition between water, food, and energy in a changing climate. When members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe set up camp on the banks of the Cannonball River in April to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline, they had little idea how widely their movement would spread. The resolute demonstration drew supporters from all corners of the continent to the North Dakota Plains. It summoned a response that not even the White House could ignore. To add on-the-scene perspective, Circle of Blues' Brett Walton spoke with Judith LeBlanc, the director of the Native Organizers Alliance. Tune in as Walton and LeBlanc explore the significance of the Dakota Access protest, the relationship between the federal government and tribal governments as related to big infrastructure projects, and the role of grassroots movements striving for political change. Welcome to Hotspots H2O. I'm Brett Walton, a Circle of Blue reporter. Today we're talking pipelines, protests, and the significance of Standing Rock. Our guest is Judith LeBlanc, director of Native Organizers Alliance. The Alliance provides support for grassroots campaigns in Indian country and has been active on the ground at Standing Rock. Judith, we're glad to have you. Glad to be with you, Brett. There's a lot to talk about. The details of the Dakota Access Pipeline protest, where it fits in the history of Indian activism in this country, and the influence it might have on other projects and other policies around the country. But I want to begin with some scene settings so that listeners have some images to carry with them through this conversation. You were in North Dakota and at Standing Rock in early December. Can you tell us what the conditions were like and what the mood was at the camp? Well, the mood at the camp has changed hour by hour. And after the initial decision on December 5th, that the easement would be denied and that there would be an environmental impact survey done. It was jubilant. It was, you know, prayers were answered. And of course, as each day after that went on, a terrible blizzard hit the area, which caused me to get stuck, stuck in a snowdrift for a couple of hours and then ended up my packing everything I could get on my back and walk to a motel uh, in Bismarck. But what has happened since then is that people have come to terms with claiming the victory, a small step, a big important step, though in many ways, in stopping the DAPL pipeline, but also to uh, understanding of we need to shift gears now. This movement, this powerful movement that was uh, has grown uh, over these many months now has to focus on the reality that Standing Rock is everywhere and that we need to shift to support the tribe and the legal str struggles and to put the pressure on the investments, investors in the pipeline to divest from the project, because that is a surefire way to ensure that the next administration will not be able to reverse that decision. Needless to say, there were many people who've given up uh, so many things in their life since August to be a water protector on the front lines. And there were a lot of discussions, debates uh, about whether or not it was the right time to leave. But when the chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe urged people 
thanked people and then urged people to go home, it was, it was um, the dire weather conditions that made the decision for many. But I think that there is a good consensus now that we've got, we've got still a lot to do to absolutely prevent the DAPL pipeline from being built, but also that their standing rock is everywhere. And there are struggles going on that, that many of the water protectors can immediately jump into action on when they go home. There have been a lot of protests over pipelines in recent years, but this protest seemed to be a singular event in environmental activism in the U.S. We had people streaming in from all over the country, all over the continent, really. Tribes from Canada, people from all corners of the U.S. What is the significance of that intensity that it brought people from all over? I think that it's very hot. Standing Rock Movement was a movement driven by the power of faith. And that faith and those prayers that the traditional Osheti elders raised up drew many people to support the fight to protect the water, the water, the drinking water of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and the sacred burial sites. But as the movement grew, it became clear to all that it really was a fight to protect the water for nearly 17 million people who live and work along the banks of the Missouri River. And that at its heart, it was a fight to protect tribal sovereignty. You know, the Bismarck governing bodies voted to have the pipeline moved away from their water supply and the energy transfer partners then moved the pipe down close to the Standing Rock tribe's land and its only water supply. And that one fact, that one fact betrays why it is so critical that tribal governments have a right to decide to protect their land, water, and air, to make that decision. That is the historic role and right uh, that tribal governments should have and be respected. That right should be respected. And so when the Standing Rock tribe, tribal leadership, took a stand over two years ago against any pipelines or fracking on or around their land, they meant it. And so energy transfer partners, you know, acted, acted as if, you know, in the business pages the year, for, for a year before, they acted as though they had the easement and they were ready to, you know, drill under the river. Well, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, through ceremony and prayer, brought people together to say, this is not only a fight for ourselves, it's a fight for tribal sovereignty. It's a fight for our right to protect our ancestors' burial grounds. And it's a, a fight to save Mother Earth and became, therefore, a pivotal moment, I think, in environmental activism for all, for Native-led environmental activism and strong alliances that are, are needed in order for us all to save Mother Earth from destruction from fossil fuels. You work for Native Organizers Alliance. You're the director there. What has been your role in this ecosystem of alliances? I, I, like, I like that you use the term, Brett, ecosystem, because I've been using a biological term. Uh, the Native Organizers Alliance is, is kind of like connective tissue in the body. You know, we work with elected tribal 
leaders, we work with Native-led nonprofits, and we work with social uh, movement activists. So we're a training and an organizing network. We do capacity building trainings, as they say in the nonprofit world. But what that really is, is that we've created curriculum based on American Indian traditions, our origin stories, our beliefs. We've created a curriculum that kind of shows the path of how we've always been collectively organized. We've always been environmentalists, even before that was a word in English. And we help people see how to strengthen our traditional ways and utilize those traditional ways and beliefs to make transformational policy change, to pressure governments, elected officials, to make the policy changes that will make Indian country a better place to live, a healthy place to live with a sense of well-being. We also are not an environmental justice group. So when we say we're an organizing network, we work with groups on the ground who are doing environmental justice, who are doing voter rights work, who are doing health care and food sovereignty work. So we, we support kind of frontline organizers in their work by helping them to develop uh, the resources that they need for the struggle. So therefore, in this situation, we work very closely with the tribal leadership to expand the reach of their message. Uh, we help to ensure that uh, museum directors all across the country were aware of the impact of the bulldozing of the sacred burial sites. We, we encouraged and developed ways for the tribal leadership to speak directly to foundations because only less than 1% of all philanthropy in the U.S. goes to Indian country. And we need, we need to be resourced in order to help protect Mother Earth. And so we work on, on all kind of angles that we support the groups that were on the ground, a number of the alumni of our training, uh, training program were leading different sectors of the camp. And then we also worked with the tribal leadership and, and, and reaching out to allies to engage in solidarity work. Connect with the issue. That brings up two questions. One, do you think there's been any fundamental change in how the U.S. government deals in its affairs with tribes because of Standing Rock? Uh, and because the Obama administration has put more emphasis on working with tribes on these sorts of big projects? Well, the Obama administration has been the one of the best administrations in developing relationships with Indian country. President Obama is the first and only president that has ever invited every elected tribal government leader to the White House every year for an annual conference on policy concerns. There's been no president in U.S. history who has done that. And as a result of those conversations, there have been a number of steps, administrative as regulation, as well as executive orders that have, that have made a difference in, in the life and economic well-being of Indian country. But we have a long way to go. And Standing Rock has changed everything. Standing Rock has put on the agenda for broad discussion and debate what, is, what should be the relationship of the federal government to uh, tribal governments when it comes to infrastructure. Right now, uh, the process of infrastructure, uh, deciding on infrastructure projects is a process called cons consultations. Well, 
at this stage of the game, when you're talking about Mother Earth being uh, so endangered, we need more than consultations. We need prior informed consent. That is, uh, you know, an international legal standard. We're sovereign nations that have the role and the responsibility of protecting our land, our air, and our water. So the Obama administration has, has put that question up for discussion. Unfortunately, we're facing a very un- uncertain road ahead with the new administration about how uh, those consultations can be instead moved towards a process of consent when it comes to infrastructure projects like the Dakota Access Pipeline. We're more than just a, you know, a, a stakeholder. We are the caretakers of our land. The Trump administration is not yet in office, but when it does come in, are there certain things that you'll be looking for as to how the administration will address Native lands issues? Well, I think that the biggest warning that we have gotten in the last week about the direction that the Trump administration may go in was uh, some statements made by his transition team about the fact that they would like to privatize Indian land, treaty-held land, if there's any oil on it, in order to, to cut down on the bureaucratic procedures, i.e. consultations and environmental impact studies, in order to, to uh, be able to do drilling for oil. That's outrageous. I mean, what they're talking about is abolishing hundreds of years of treaty agreements. Most of some, you know, many of the treaty agreements have not been fully realized, but the ones that have, in the sense of the role of our tribal governments and our land base, we, we, we're going to have a fight on our hands if they it, move in that direction. And I think the Standing Rock movement is the kind of movement that has strong allies where we will, we will wage the kind of fight that, that hopefully will protect our land base. I, I think the, the other dangers that we all face is the gutting of the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, the EPA has been underfunded, under-resourced, but has played a very important role in overseeing you know, protection of water. Uh, we think that they could do more. We think that tribal governments have the role and the responsibility to have and have the right to have their own EPA standards. And we're, we're looking towards planning out how we can protect the Missouri River, how we can protect the Colorado River, and, and remedy some of, the, some of the crisis problems that exist, especially along the Colorado River, where there are many tribes. Uh, so water protection is going to be the most important struggle in Indian country. And that is part of the struggle around the right to health care. You know, the Republican-controlled Congress, they're already saying that their first step is to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which is a critical feature to Indian health care. The Indian Health Recovery Act, which was blended into the ACA, to the Affordable Care Act, uh, if it is repealed, it will have crisis impact on health services in Indian country. And you really can't separate health and well-being from water. Water is, for us, not only sacred, but it is a part of our origin stories. All life comes from water. And so water, health, and well-being, and the role that the federal government plays it's in Indian country is uh, 
unable to be untangled. And so we've got to fight ahead to protect water and health and well-being in Indian country. Right. I mean, that's been the rallying cry for the protests in North Dakota, that water is life. You said earlier that Standing Rock is everywhere. And I guess the big question I have is whether the model that was established at Standing Rock can be replicated elsewhere and whether there are any projects on the horizon or targets for activism that uh, these groups are looking at. Well, Standing Rock is everywhere is, is really how to describe the next steps on uh, preventing the building of the Dakota Access Pipeline. We're very much focused on urging banks to divest from the pipeline. It's not a good investment because wherever that pipeline goes, it's going to meet resistance among farmers and ranchers as well as Native peoples and, and environmentalists. And Standing Rock is everywhere doesn't necessarily mean that the model of how this social movement evolved uh, will be uh, replicated. But what it does mean is that we have created a model which actually began to reestablish traditional ways of collective community. We reestablished at the Osheti Shukun camp the traditional leadership, the Osheti traditional leadership, the tribes, Lakota, Nakota, Dakota tribes have never been together the way that they came together to protect the water. And it was the first time in U.S. history that, over, that so many tribes, over 350 tribes, even those who derive revenue streams from fossil fuels, came together to back sta the Standing Rock tribal government. And so, in some ways, the model of showing our strength through our faith and our cultural traditions as the centerpiece of a political movement is is I think in many ways the necessary path towards saving Mother Earth and, and in building transformational movements for, for change. I mean, we, in, so, in some ways, uh, we as a people have been at the, in some ways, developing an approach uh, on, on this issue that is trying to replicate some of the things that have been taken away from us as a colonized people. Um, we have always, we have always had a structure or relationship building has always been a part of tribal culture, kinship, the cultivation of alliances. That's always been a part of tribal culture, just collective decision-making, Re resisting Resisting colonization entailed not just uh, military battles, but also the power of peacemaking. And really the spiritual direction of, of the camp and remaining in a prayerful, peaceful uh, state was, the pow was powerful. It was more powerful than rubber bullets because it gave people a sense of of true meaning in their life and their relationship to Mother Earth, of which we have a special, unique, spiritual relationship to Mother Earth. And, and so the model of being in prayer, using the power of peace, and mobilizing people power around that faith, I think it can be replicated. I don't know if the potential is there in every struggle to do it, but I think for the tens of thousands of people who came through that camp, who connected with that camp in solidarity, they've been moved 
to understand that you can't fight hate with hate, you can't fight violence with violence, and you can't stop the rape of Mother Earth by attacking and dehumanizing those who, who defend that profit-driven corporate attack on Mother Earth. Many months of resistance was when the Youth Council, after a very uh, militarized attack on the water protectors, uh, took water, blessed water from our uh, holy people to the place where the National Guard and the Morton County sheriffs were. And they walked to that barricade on the bridge, knelt in prayer, and prayed for the sheriffs and the National Guard and those who had, who had acted violently towards the water protectors and offered them water. Some of those National Guardsmen took the water and blessed themselves. Now, did that change the dynamic? In a powerful way, it did. It did for the water protectors. It, 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 it really helped us center in on why we were there. But it also was an attempt to, to reach, reach those on the other side to get them to think more deeply about what was at stake. You know, the Standing Rock Sioux people have to live there long after all the water protectors leave. And the relationships to the Morton County Sheriff and the, the National Guardsmen from that area will go on. We already have heard stories in Bismarck of masked white men uh, harassing Indians in, in the parking lot of a, of a motel. And some of, I saw when, while I was there, some of the, the tensions that had been stirred up. But the truth is that the healing process is going to go on for some time. And we're willing to, to, to move forward in the name of peace and in the name of, you know, we all share this planet together. So long story short, can we replicate it? I hope so. Um, because I think it is a way that we're going to have to challenge some of the hate and the violence that we will face in, in the next four years because of the way that the uh, elections uh, kind of stirred up those feelings among people all across the country around uh, an array of issues. This has been another installment of Hotspots H2O. You've been listening to Judith LeBlanc of the Native Organizers Alliance and Circle of Blues' Brett Walton. Read more of Circle of Blue's frontline coverage of the fast-changing competition between water, food, and energy at circleofblue.org. Thanks for joining us. I'm J. Carl Ganter. <laughs>